20 centuries ago, God performed the greatest miracle in the history of mankind. The incarnation. The second member of our triune God took on to himself a second nature. God the Son became what he was not while never ceasing to be who he was. The Son of God became the Son of Mary. And so for nine months, God the Son swam in amniotic fluid. For nine months, the light of the world hid himself in the womb of a virgin. And then, Christmas. Crucifixion. Resurrection. Ascension. The great commission to go forth was given to the disciples. The church was born. And this gospel, this good news that Jesus Christ had come into the world to save sinners by dying in their place for their sins and rising again from the dead after the third day. This good news was spreading. And so Matthew, one of those disciples of Jesus, picked up his pen to write this gospel. The biography of Jesus according to Matthew. And Matthew wants us to know, what he writes to the end of, is helping us to learn that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. The beginning of Matthew's gospel, which announces the coming and the birth of Christ, along with his pedigree, doesn't make any sense without the end of Matthew's gospel, without the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. He wants us to know that Jesus was born to die. That Jesus was born to rise again. That Jesus was born to rule forever. That's the main idea this morning. That Jesus is the promised son of David whose kingdom will be established forever. And Jesus is the seed of Abraham who will bless the nations. What we should do in response to this is to believe the good news. Believe the gospel. We'll work through our text by considering six truths together. You can see them there before you. And before we get to that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Christmas season the opportunity to gather together here and worship you on this Lord's Day. We consider together this morning the astounding truth that you wrote yourself into human history. That you became, you God the Son, became a man so that you might become killable so that you might die for sinners like us, Jesus. 
Jesus, we thank you for these things. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to to do this. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us. Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us to hear your word and be changed by it as we consider this first section of Matthew together. Give us ears to hear and help me to preach a better sermon than I've prepared. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get to that wonderful first verse of Matthew's gospel, it's necessary to do some historical work so we can appreciate it. We want to kind of climb inside of first century Jewish skin, if you will. The people have not heard from God. They've not heard a word from God in 400 years since Malachi prophesied. The last book in the Hebrew Bible is Chronicles. And what Chronicles does is it outlines the history of the nation, all the way from the beginning in Genesis and Adam, all all the way to the post-exilic period. And so, in that first century Jewish mind, they're sitting around for 400 years, they've read Chronicles, and they're wondering, what is God doing in history? They're waiting, thinking, is God going to keep his promises? We haven't even heard from him in 400 years. I mean, imagine being a first century Jew. That's, that's your mindset. You're waiting on the promises of God. And you read this verse. You read verse 1 of Matthew's gospel. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Whoa, this is a huge and exciting claim. Matthew is saying, the one that you have been waiting for has come. And this is his story. These are... Incredible claims. We'll take them one by one. And the first claim is not immediately apparent. It's a, it's a bit opaque in English, and so I'm going to try to help you, you see it a little bit. But that first claim that Matthew is making is that Jesus is a new beginning. That God is doing something new in Jesus. And you see, Matthew's gospel actually opens up in Greek, uh, biblio Genesios. So if we were just translating that word for word into English, it would be Bible, like Biblio, or book, Genesios, Genesis. So if you're, if you're doing work like book of Genesis, Genesis book, you with me? And so in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the first book of the Bible was called the book of Genesis. And so here in Matthew, he's picking up on that and he's saying, this is the book of Genesis. The book of the Genesis, genealogy, of Jesus Christ. And what he's doing is he's signaling to us that God is doing something new. This is a new beginning. In Genesis, 
of the Old Testament, the Word of God creates the world and man. And in this Genesis and Matthew, the Word of God takes on flesh and becomes a man. God enters into his creation. And we see it in verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. God is doing something new. It's a new beginning. And he's giving to the world a new Adam. The new Adam will be unstained from sin like the original. And yet, unlike the original, he will pass the test of temptation. He will live a perfect life. And he will fulfill his role as king by crushing the head of the serpent rather than submitting himself to it. This new Adam will begin a whole new kind of person. A new creation. He will bring life rather than death. Paul explains this for us in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes in verse 21, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterward it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule, all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. God is doing something new in history, is the announcement right away. And he's doing it through this person. Matthew's introducing his audience to Jesus. And while they might not immediately think of a, a new Adam, it would be clear that this is a new beginning, a new Genesis. And Jesus is the fulcrum upon which the whole thing turns. All of it is centered around this Jesus who Matthew identifies as the Christ. Once more, Christ is not a last name. You don't have Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and James Christ and Jesus Christ and you know little Philip and Lily Christ. And they have a mat in front of their house that says the Christ family. Welcome. No, it's not a last name. It's a title. Much in the same way uh, when somebody takes the highest office in our land, they are called the president. And then they're called by that title, right? The rest of their lives. President uh, Obama, President Trump, President Clinton, President Lincoln, this title is now attached to them. It tells you something about who they are, their identity and their function. This is what the title Christ does. In Hebrew, the title for Christ is Messiah, right? It means anointed one, chosen one, and it is strongly associated with God's king. So you can see Matthew right from the get-go, this is God's chosen one. This is God's chosen king, the son of David. We've been talking a lot about this phrase recently as we went through 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. The one who is the son of David is the son of God. This is the one who, who sits the throne. 
And so, so certainly for those in the first century, those Jewish, the Jewish audience that would have been reading this gospel, images would have been conjured up in their minds of the Old Testament. They would have thought of 2 Samuel 7 and God promising to his people that he would raise up for them a king who would reign on the throne forever. About how David would have a house that went on in perpetuity. They would have thought of Psalm chapter 2 and the conquering king who comes to establish God's rule on the earth. They would have thought of Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to it, to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation, increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is what is in their minds. The child that was to be born has come. And this is his story. The son of David has arrived. The one we've been waiting on to throw off the Roman oppression has arrived. And Matthew is going to tell us about him. These really are stupendous claims. Jesus is the promised son of David. But Matthew doesn't stop there. He also says that Jesus is the son of of Abraham. And we can remember that Abraham, back in Genesis 12, was promised that he would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That through him, all nations would be blessed. That promise is reiterated in Genesis 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations, all people of the earth, be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Paul explains these promises to Abraham in Galatians for us. In Galatians 3.16 he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, he does not say into seeds, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. Paul is saying that the true offspring of Abraham is Jesus. And then you consider that next to verses 6 and 9 of Galatians 3. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, 
Then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. And so Jesus is going to bring this blessing of Abraham to the world. All nations are going to be blessed through Abraham by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Matthew is saying, the blessing of Abraham has come. The king you have waited on has come. There is a a new beginning. And these are just breathtaking claims. And and I feel like we come to them and we read them with a a humdrum, meh. But we we should be struck by this. Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. After this really long period of waiting, and have you ever waited for anything? And culture moves so fast, say, I don't wait on anything. I don't wait on Christmas. Like people, you know, I've got to wait till Christmas to get this or that particular gift. Like, I don't do that. I get on Amazon and I order something and it's my door two days later. It's not that long of a wait, right? I even do that if I get my wife something, I, I give it to her when I get it. Like, I can't hold on to it. I wait till Christmas. No, here, I got you this. It's for Christmas. She's like, it's July. Yeah, well. We, we don't do a whole lot of waiting in our culture. And so it's really hard for us to understand what it would be like to be waiting on the promises of God to come to fruition. Even though we should, much like the Jews of the first century, be waiting on the promise of God to come to fruition. Uh, They were waiting for Jesus' first advent, and we should be waiting for his second advent with great expectation and hopefulness. And yet we become so consumed with the temporal that we don't do much waiting for the return of Christ at all. The Jews who had waited recognized that even though it had felt a very long time to them, that God was not working according to their calendar. It would have been easy for the first century Jew to go, you know, it's been 400 years since God has spoken, and so he must not be able to keep his promises. Not faithful. That would have been a mistake because you can't judge God according to your calendar. He's the master of history. That he always is working at the appropriate pace. And he brought Jesus in the fullness of time. Jesus, the new beginning. The Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mean, this is a a wonderful recap here, right? They say, Jesus is a, there's a new beginning in Jesus. He's a new kind of Adam. He's a a new king of humanity. Jesus is the son of David. That's the king of Israel. Jesus is the the son of Abraham. He's going to bring blessing to the nations. He's the king of the nations. And so we are to see Jesus is the king of kings. It's the key that unlocks history. He's the one around whom the world revolves. These are some big claims from Matthew. And so Matthew moves to to begin 
backing them up. That's what the rest of his gospel is. He said, here are my claims, and now here's all the evidence about why you should believe this. And his, his first exhibit, exhibit A, is to actually give to us Jesus' genealogy. Let's read it together. I worked on these names, so we're going to see how I do. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathen. Mathen fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. What we need to understand about all these names and about this genealogy in particular is that it serves an important purpose in Matthew's gospel. And its purpose is theological, not biological. Luke does that. No, no, Matthew's purpose is to give to us kind of a resume of Jesus. This is how genealogies functioned in the ancient world. Like, you and I, we try to let everybody know about our great academic acumen and all of the wonderful experience we have in the field, and we want them to know how qualified we are for the position on the basis of what we know. But in the ancient world, it was more like, uh, sometimes you've heard the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's how things kind of functioned. You would recommend yourself or someone else for a particular position based on the people that you know, based on your family or your family name. And so what Matthew's outlining for us here, what he's trying to accomplish, is he wants to prove to us that Jesus is qualified to be king. And so he's setting before us Jesus' resume. And, and the funny thing about resumes in the ancient world is they worked a little bit like they do today, where you don't put everything on there, right? And so uh, when you're applying for particular positions, uh, you don't oftentimes include you know, the stint that you did at, at Dairy Queen, Right? If you did, you might put like ice cream artist or chef. You don't, don't include the stint that you did as a, the, the Chick-fil-A cow or as a sign flipper. You know, the, those things are not, you know, they don't really qualify me for the position. It's not important that they know that. Now you build your resume to put you in the best possible light. And this is what people did. It was an understood practice. And so there would be purposeful omissions. And Matthew has just left some people out on purpose. And if you just, if we read verse 17, he makes it very clear why. Again, because his, what he's aiming to do 
is give us something that's theologically significant, not chronologically precise. So look, look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until Christ, 14 generations. And if you're keeping track, you've got 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to Babylon, the exile, and then 14 from the exile to um, the current period. The way you can break it up in your mind, you'll see there's three paragraphs in your Bible, 2 to 6, 7 to 11, and 12 through 16. You've got your patriarchs, then you've got your kings, and then you've got captives, when the people of Israel is captive to other nations. And each of these sections has within it 14, 14 generations. And Matthew has curated the genealogy so that that would be the case. And so we ask the question, what is the big deal about the number 14? Just seems kind of random. Lucky number? I don't know. Well, the Jewish people, like many ancient people, really loved numbers and word games and kind of hidden puzzles. You know, like some people like Sudoku today, I guess. Uh, but what you would do in Hebrew is all the Hebrew consonants had a numeric value assigned to them, right? And so if we were doing the same thing in English, it would be like the letter A represents the number one. The letter B represents the number two. The letter C corresponds to the number three. You with me? Well, in the Hebrew alphabet, Dalit is the fourth letter, right? Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit. Dalit's number four. Vav is the sixth letter. Okay, so you, you with me so far? And so what you would do to represent someone's name is you could add up those numeric values to a sum. And so if we've got Dalit, D, Vav, V, D, in Hebrew, you know what name that is, right? David. And so if you go four plus six plus four, what do you get? 14. You see what Matthew's doing? He's saying Jesus is from David. Jesus is from David. Jesus is from David. It's as if he is shouting at us, King, King, King. Jesus is the king. He's the one we've been waiting for. And guess whose name is 14th on the list? It's David's. And there are other kings in this genealogy as well, but none of them bear that title except for King David. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is qualified to be the king. And, and let me show you something else too. He also traces the lineage through Solomon, whereas Luke traces the lineage through Nathan. Why? Because Solomon was the king after David. Again, he's showing kingship. You'll look in verse 8. A lot of your Bibles, there's, there's manuscript evidence that conflicts, and the reason is what Matthew has done is he's written in, he's changed some of these names that would appear in genealogy, in Jesus' genealogy. And so what they, they said, this is Asa. Asa is the name that should be there. But how Matthew originally wrote it, he wrote Asaph. And they're going, Asaph? 
He doesn't fit into Jesus' genealogy. What do you mean? He must have meant Asa and just accidentally written Asaph, and so you had some scribes try to correct it. But you probably have a footnote there that says it should be Asaph, or that it was originally Asaph, or other manuscripts read Asaph. And you go, why would Matthew have written Asaph? Because he's, he's, he's winking at us here. He's doing more work in this genealogy. Who wrote a ton of Psalms? Asaph. You're seeing that this Jesus is not only king, David, David, David. He's also the great prophet that we've been waiting on. I'm sorry, the great psalmist. He's going to fulfill the wisdom literature. And same thing happens with the name Ammon in verse 10. You'll have a footnote there. Other manuscripts read Amos. Amos was a prophet. And so what, what Matthew is saying is all of the Hebrew Bible, the writings and the prophets and the wisdom literature, all of it is coming together in this king, this king of David. Jesus is qualified to be the king. This is quite the resume. And then as we go on through the rest of the chapter, you see that, that Matthew continues to, to up the ante. Not only does Jesus meet all these qualifications, but he's, he's the one that's born of a virgin that we saw prophesied in Isaiah 7. He's, he's the one that's going to throw off our enemies. That would have been the expectation. So you can imagine being a Jew going, you're reading this gospel, and going, this is incredible. We're going to throw off the yoke of our enemies. We're going to inherit the land. We're going to enjoy some great prosperity. I mean, Matthew's just heaping up expectations for who Jesus is. And then if we read along in his gospel, there's a big turn in chapter 16 that flips everything upside down. A familiar passage. Jesus asks, in verse 15, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he gave his disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Things are going good. That, that fits with what we would expect from what Matthew has said early on in chapter 1 and, and all these other things uh, that Jesus is doing in his life in this big portrait of the Messiah. But then the twist comes in verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and the scribes to be killed and to be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turns and tells Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns but human ones. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. 
For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Everything changes in this moment. The the expectation is that Jesus is going to be the conquering king. Peter and the disciples are expecting to fight at his side as he takes back the holy city. And he says, boys, you don't need swords. If you want to follow me and be my disciples, what you're going to need is a cross. Because I'm going to die. Right? Jesus doesn't make any sense here. Because messiahs don't die. Messiahs win. Messiahs deliver the people. They don't die. He doesn't make any sense. Peter is the one who makes sense. Jesus is turning everything inside out and upside down. He's saying, I'm not the king. I am the king you expected, but I'm coming in a way that that you don't expect. Yes, I'm going to establish my forever kingdom, but that's not until my second advent. This go around, I've come to die. I've come to die for the sins of all who will repent and trust in me. And Jesus says, anyone who wants to come after me, anyone who wants to enjoy my salvation, must deny himself, take up a cross, and follow me. This is not an easy command. This is not an expected command. Jesus says, those who have repentant faith, then come to me. They'll enjoy my reign. But in following me, they need to be prepared to suffer like me. This is quite the turn. It turns out God's mission for his Messiah was bigger than his people anticipated. His kingdom is actually larger than they had guessed. Because it's not going to include just biological Israel. In fact, nobody gets into the kingdom of God based on who their mommy and daddy are. No, no. Those who come into the kingdom of God will be those who, like Abraham, have faith. Jesus brings the blessing of Abraham to all those who put their faith in him. Jesus' kingdom is not just one race or one nation. It's made up of all people, from all kinds of nations. It turns out he came not just to deliver Israel from a geopolitical enemy. He came to deliver all who would put their faith in him from death itself and from sin And this includes Gentiles. Come back to to Jesus' resume here, this genealogy. It has some peculiarities in it. We've pointed out a few of them. But something that has just got to stand out at us, stand out to us here, is the inclusion of women. 
in the first century, you did not include women in a genealogy, right? This was just not helpful, right? If you're trying to recommend yourself for a job in the ancient world, you're trying to let people know who you're connected to, putting women on your genealogy, it's not going to help your case. It's going to hurt your case. It might be akin to putting like sometimes steals office supplies on your resume today, right? This is not, this isn't helpful. So we have to ask, did, did Matthew mess up? No, but but why? There are four women here, if we don't include Mary. You have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. You go, okay, I get it. You wanted to include women, but why these women, right? Why not the great matriarchs of Israel, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and and Leah, good Israelite women? Why are you including Canaanites, prostitutes, and Moabites. It's because God is showing us something. All these women are Gentiles. They're they're, they're outsiders. They're looked down upon. And what we're seeing is that they have been included in God's redemptive plan. And so we actually see, not just from these women, but from the notorious sinners scattered throughout Jesus' genealogy, that the family he comes from anticipates the family he has come for. Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. Whether, whether Tamar's or Rahab's or, or Ruth's or King David's or Solomon's, he's come to save all kinds of sinners. I love all these stories. I don't have time to, to tell you all. I'm going to tell you a couple. But you remember Rahab's story? She's a prostitute in Jericho and the Israelite spies come and she goes, I've heard good things about this Israelite God and so I'm going to hide these spies. And the result is is that she's welcomed into the people of Israel and she winds up in the lineage of Christ. And we see that, that God loves prostitutes and he's willing to save them. Look at, at King David who's perhaps the best name on the list but then Matthew immediately draws our attention to David's failures says he fathered Solomon, and he makes sure we understand that he just doesn't say fathered Solomon by Bathsheba. He wants us to see David's sin by Uriah's wife, Uriah the Hittite's wife. I mean, David, the, the, the greatest Israelite, is also one of the greatest sinners in Scripture. He manipulates Bathsheba into sleeping with him. Whether it is consensual or rape, we do not know. It certainly was an adulterous affair. Then he murders her husband to try to hide the fact that he got Bathsheba pregnant. God, God loves victims of sexual abuse, like Bathsheba. And God loves perpetuators of sexual abuse and murderers and liars like David. He's willing to save all kinds of sinners. They trust in his promises. Maybe my, my favorite name on the list is Joram. Not Jor, is it Joram or Jotham? Jotham there in verse 9. You get them confused, all these names. In his kind of, I guess it's kind of an obituary, but in 2 Chronicles 21.20, uh, this is what the author writes 
He died to no one's regret. He's a wicked king. I'm going to try that at the next funeral I do. Died to no one's regret. Amen. Let's go. But God, this is my point, the most wicked of kings, and I'm not, not claiming salvation for any of them, I don't know. This is more, the point is that God loves those that might die to no one's regret. There is no one who is too far gone to experience the grace of God. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross to forgive sins is powerful enough to cleanse anyone who turns from their sins and comes to him and says, I believe you are my Lord and my God. There's power in the blood. No one's beyond his graciousness. So maybe, maybe you're somebody here that you've thought, God couldn't love me. He doesn't know what I've done. He couldn't forgive my sin. You overestimate the power of your sin and you underestimate the grace of God. He can forgive any sinner. He will outgrace and outforgive your sinning. He's that good. Friend, if you are not in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I implore you to stop waiting because the King has come. Believe the good news. The gospel. And that's what the gospel is. It's good news. It's not good advice. We're not, when we become Christians, we're not saying, all right, do X, Y, and Z, and then you can have peace with God. We are saying, God has given peace. He's given us grace. All we have to do is receive it by faith. We're not, Christianity, the message of Christianity is not all the good people are in and all the bad people are out. The message of Christianity is everybody's out and those who receive the grace of God by faith alone, they're in. Receive his grace. Christian, keep believing the good news and keep waiting for Jesus' second advent with a certain hope and great expectation. Let us celebrate the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ in time and space and history that he came to forge a new beginning for us that indeed he is the messianic son of David, the one who brings the blessing of Abraham to all who will turn from sins and put their faith in him. Let's celebrate that. And let's long for his return to end evil entirely and to make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that each and every part of it is inspired by you. We thank you that even in sections we might initially find boring, that there are mysteries yet to be uncovered. And we submit ourselves to you and pray, look for the illumination of your spirit. But we thank you that each and every word of the Bible points us to our Lord Jesus Christ, who became a man so that he might die in the place of sinful men who rose again from the dead so that we might be free from death, who rules and reigns in heaven right now, patiently waiting to return, merciful action, 
so that more might repent of sin and trust in him. And Lord, we look forward to his returning. Lord, we recognize our world is weak and weary and permeated with, with evil and suffering. And so we wait for Christ's return when he will ameliorate all these things. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the one who has slayed the dragon of evil and of death. That he is the one who has purchased for all his people true, happy ending. Peace with God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.